The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's our weekly visit from John Gibbons to discuss environmental matters. And let's start with a positive story. Tell us what the boss of the Patagonia company, the clothes sales company, is doing. Uh, good evening, Matt. Yeah, uh, this is a gentleman called Yvonne Schwinard. I hope I haven't butchered his name. Uh, he's an 83-year-old uh, multi-billionaire. Uh, he set up uh, Patagonia about 50 years ago, and he he, he describes himself as a as a reluctant uh, billionaire. I think it was never his intention to 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 make money, but he's obviously been extremely successful. Now, Patagonia itself uh, has been has been donating about one percent of its sales every year uh, to environmental NGOs. And, for example, there's a, there's a Patagonia in Dublin, uh, in city centre, that regularly hosts uh, events for environmental organisations. It makes the, its facilities available for free and so on. But basically what, what Patagonia is about essentially is recognising that we're in a climate emergency. And uh, this gentleman, this very wealthy gentleman, uh, the way he put it, he said, as we begin to witness the extent of global warming and ecological destruction and our own contribution to it, Patagonia is committed to using our company to change the way business is done. And, he, and he, he put it very succinctly. He said, Earth is now our only shareholder. So essentially, billions of euros worth of revenues uh, around this company will now be made available uh, basically to fight climate change. And, and I suppose, Matt, I I've, I've, haven't heard anything like this. Uh, it really is quite unique. And it's, yeah, because, uh, John, he could have sold the business and taken in, some people have estimated it might be worth about $3 billion and then donated the money to climate activism. But what he's decided instead is is to continue running the business even after he's gone as a sort of a going concern with the profits going to climate action and the business been run on a sustainable basis, which new owners mightn't have done. That's right. He made the point that uh, if he had, for example, if the pub, the company had been allowed to go public, there's simply no guarantee what would happen uh, because public companies are constantly under pressure to create uh, quick wins for shareholders and cutting corners. And that also part of, of course, the Patagonia philosophy extends to their own employees. And I think he's very conscious of of his responsibility to the thousands of people who work for the company. So, yeah, the company is staying together. And his point is that even after he slips off his mortal coil, this company should continue to function and be a, be a force for good uh, into the future. But I think it is a remarkable thing because by and large, billionaires um, donate. I mean, many of them do make donations, but, but generally speaking, it's only a tiny fraction of their, of their true wealth. So this is almost unprecedented. I think probably Chuck Feeney, uh, the famous, uh, the famous American benefactor for Irish education is probably the only other example that I can think of where somebody literally said, "I need to do the right thing here." And in the case of Mr. Schwinner, what he has looked at and he's been conscious of all his life is the the growing climate and ecological crisis. And I suppose he has, in the very literal sense, Matt, he has put his money where his mouth is and said that these revenues will, will, will all be concentrated in future on resolving the, the climate crisis. And uh, as I said, if there were more Fair like him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, why are you such a big fan of zebra crossings, John? Yeah, I, I, I guess this experience, Matt, on zebra crossings, for me anyway, comes from driving around France uh, over the years. And I, I think, for example, I've been in a, in a small town called ile sur le sorgue It's just a another small town. And you drive down the main street, and what you notice is that about every 80 to 90 metres, you encounter uh, an unmarked zebra crossing. Now, what I mean by unmarked is, is it doesn't have flashing lights. It's simply the, the paint on the road. Now, what that means is 
that it is completely impossible to gain speed as you drive through one of these towns. There's simply no point because you're always, as a driver, you're always on the defensive. So you drive all the way through the town and every, as I say, every 100 metres or so, you're giving way to pedestrians. And it has the most incredible calming effect on traffic in towns. And this is without installing bumps, without installing flashing lights. People understand that pedestrians have right away in town centres uh, and even in quite small rural villages, you see exactly the same thing, Matt. And I was kind of looking into this. I thought it was, it was sort of interesting. And what, what I discovered in my travels is that uh, Dublin has a particular problem with zebra crossings. And, and by one calculation, uh, there, are, there are more zebra crossings on the seafront in Bray than there are in the entire Dublin city council area. So I was very puzzled as to why Dublin has such a problem with, with, with zebra crossings. And I was speaking to uh, Kean Ginty in uh, Irish Cycle, cycles.com. And Kean was explaining to me that, that, well, first of all, his organization has drawn up a map of zebra crossings around Ireland and they have found that there are about, they've so far they've mapped about 600 zebra crossings. So they are being used in local authority areas, but for some reason in the city, and it appears that our engineers in particular, they believe that the purpose of roads is to speed traffic around and they consider zebra crossings to be, uh, if you like, an impediment to that to that. A free movement of traffic. Now, obviously, there are places where zebra crossings aren't going to work. For example, you can't have a, a zebra crossing on O'Connell Bridge because, number one, it's too wide. Number two, there are too many pedestrians, which mean that the basically traffic would never get by. But there are many places, many, many places of lower intensity where they could easily be used. And they are really low technology kit. But interestingly, in Ireland, um, it is impossible by law to put in a zebra crossing unless you also install the lights. Now, I'm told that at the moment, the Department of uh, Transport, they have they are, are currently trialing uh, a system of, of, of zebra crossings without the, the, the warning beacons. And these are coming, for example, to areas like Dunleary, uh, and they're going to they're going to install them basically to, to see how they get along. But it, it, it reminds me, Matt, a little bit of efforts in Dublin, and we see it now in Cable Street as well, uh, to, to pedestrianise. Everywhere we get efforts like this, we get this massive pushback from what's called the car lobby uh, at, at, at any attempt at sharing the street space with other users. And, and I'm okay. personally fascinated as to why, for example, in our city centres, where the overwhelming number of people in our city centres are actually pedestrians, yet they have to run the gauntlet for the limited number of drivers uh, to, to uh, speed from one place to another. Okay, one last thing I want to talk to you about. I know you want to talk about carbon offsets, but I'm saving that for a day when we have more time. I want to ask you about another major uh, global warming report. And uh, this is the United in Science report, because this one is frightening. It's getting very little attention, I suppose. There's a British Queen who has to be buried, and that gets the news cycle's attention for whatever reason. And yet, here's something that could potentially kill hundreds of millions of people. Tell us about this new report. Yeah, Matt, uh, this report has been coordinated by the World Meteorological Organization and they brought in some of the big guns. So it includes the UN Environment Programme, the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, the World Climate Research Programme. So basically, these are major uh, international organizations involved in, in, in in, I suppose, the interface, if you like, between science and society, where these impacts come. And what this study basically... Uh, it describes what, what the UN General Secretary described as uncharted territory of destruction. And they're looking, for example, at uh, what are called tipping points. And you and I have spoken about these before. But, but briefly, to recap, a tipping point in the climate system is a moment or a point at which a particular system 
flips from one condition into another. So, for example, you can reach it. You can have a certain amount of, of uh, melting, say, in a glacier or an ice cap, and it reaches a certain critical point where all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again. In other words, it, it, it reaches a certain moment and at which collapse is guaranteed. So what this report is telling us, Matt, is that right across the globe, we're looking at systems that are approaching very close to tipping points. Now, we've seen this summer, for example, uh, obviously the extreme weather in Pakistan, the uh, record European heat wave, the hottest summer ever recorded in Europe this summer, uh, this continuing drought in China, the US mega drought that's running for 20 years now, and near famine conditions in parts of Africa which have not traditionally had had uh, famine, if you like. So this is a, a global phenomenon. This is what we're seeing. And also, I guess, what's coming through loud and clear from this report is that it is having huge impacts. For example, they estimate right now that the global economy or economic losses, if you, if you like, uh, are currently running at the rate of about $200 million a day. So this is about $75 billion a year being lost to the global economy in direct impacts. And I would suggest, Matt, that that's probably a gross underestimate. If you look at the damage, say, in Pakistan with a third of the country underwater, I mean, that country alone is probably experiencing tens, scores of billions of dollars worth of damage. So this is really uh, what they're trying to get at. They're also pointing out, Matt, that we're, we're number one, the past seven years, uh, going back to 2015, those seven years contain all of the seven hottest years on the instrumental record. And that record goes back to 1880. So we know that we're in drastically changed times. And as you said in your introduction, what we're, what's on the line here is the lives of millions, tens, even hundreds of millions of people. And I think this, this penny hasn't dropped because, for example, when I was looking around today, I, I, I saw one of our uh, TDs uh, saying that it's time to park the climate crack and keep the lights on this winter. So unfortunately, we still have elected representatives in Dáil Éireann who are treating the climate emergency like a joke and like something that can be uh, thrown away whenever we've got something else to worry about. And unfortunately, this is something that we see, Matt. We still have this problem where uh, we're just not, it's not getting taken seriously enough by the media. And unfortunately, some of our politicians are still absolutely in denial. We take it seriously enough to have you on with us every week, John Gibbons, and on other occasions as well. We'll talk to you again next Thursday. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.